Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Pulitzer Prize-winning Jane Smiley's latest writing success is her Last Hundred Years trilogy, an investigation of American identity through the Midwestern Langdon clan from the 1920s to the 2020s. She discusses this in her back catalogue, which includes an essay on knitting, Why Bother?, a novel on the horse racing business, Horse Heaven, and the King Lear-inspired A Thousand Acres with Paula Morris during a visit to the festival supported by literary tour company Ponder and Sea. We hope you enjoy this session. I just I think Jane's written 14 novels, is that correct? 16. Just, well, and that was just since she's arrived. Unless you count these as one. No, we should count them as separately, 16. Yeah as well as non-fiction, including the very wonderful book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. Now, this is a book I recommend to uh, aspiring writers, to writing students, as well as to avid readers. It's very good. Um, As you know, her novels include uh, such a range, The Greenlanders, of which Jonathan Franzen is a big fan, an epic written in the style of the Icelandic sagas. I'm sure a lot of you have read A Thousand Acres, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 92 and was made into a movie. Uh, Moo, a satire of the academic life. What's to satirise in that? I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, Horse Heaven, published in 2000, which has been described as her Dickensian panorama of the racing world. And one of my favourite of her books, Ten Days in the Hills, which was loosely modelled on Boccaccio's Decameron and set in contemporary Hollywood. I, I have to say about that, that on Amazon there's a reviewer that wrote, um, if you don't like that, this book... It means you must not have a good sex life. <laughs> There's a lot of sex in the book. Yeah, there is. But so, Boccaccio made me do it. I didn't mean to do it. But he made me do it. She upset John Updike with all that sex. He liked it. He liked it. But he, he died soon after. <laughs> His ghost has just Poor pushed guy. over that book. <laughs> uh, so this, these three books in front of you, uh, her most recent novels, they formed the last Hundred Years Trilogy. And they explore in very vivid and sympathetic detail the the both pastoral and epic story of one American family. Small towns, world wars, booms, busts, big ambitions, personal disasters, love stories, rivalries. That's what we're going to talk about today. So some luck, early warning, and the golden age. Did you put them in order? I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know if they're left, left or right. From that for them, oh. but whatever. It's a, it's this a is number one, that's number two, and that's number three. Okay. Uh, the LA Times raved about the first one, Some Luck, that it simultaneously miniaturizes and contextualizes uh, three decades of American history, and of course, over the whole trilogy, it's a century. Uh, now, recently in the Atlantic Monthly, Jane described the essence of the novel as accessing the mind of another human being in a way that combines freedom with intimacy. This is a rare thing, she said. You don't get it through an interview. So we'll have to try our best today. Uh, Please welcome again to the Auckland Writers' Festival, Jane Smiley. (laughs) And now it's glasses on, I'm afraid. (laughs) So Jane, I've actually interviewed you before for the New Zealand Listener in 2007 Mm -hmm. when 10 Days in the Hills came out. And you told me at the time, you said, writing screenplays bores me to death. You said books have a greater complexity and novelists have greater freedom from the requirements and other, for, of others and also yes. the demands of mass appeal. So I wondered in writing this trilogy if there was a greater restriction of you because of your structure of a chapter per year 
Or was this possibility of writing three big books that span a century part of that freedom of the novelist you talk about? Well, you know, structure is always freeing. And so you have to decide what the structure is going to um, be. So if the structure is going to be a plot, you have to follow the arc of the plot, and you have to have plot twists, and you have to have exposition, and you have to have climax and all of that. Um, but that's not the only possible structure. It's just the most popular structure, I would say. But you can have a more um, abstract structure as long as you stick to it. And I think that the reader, or my experience as a reader, is that you subliminally become aware of the structure and how it's kind of shaping your experience of the book. If, if some writers just go on and on and on and have a terrible time with structure. Dickens was like that in his early days before he sort of got it together. Um, and he got it together when he was about 30. Um, and I think the first book of Dickens that, had, that he really paid attention to the structure was Dombey and Son. And so if you read the early books and then you read Dombey and Son, you see that he's actually figured something out about structure. Um, but for, for a novel and a novelist, structure is a very idiosyncratic thing. And so once we have taken in our connection to the author and, and enjoyed our connection to the author, then we, we forgive him or her for, for being a little out of it. For example, um, one of my favorite authors is Anthony Trollope. And... He does tend to go on and on, but because I like the way he thinks, I don't mind that he goes on and on. Um, there are other authors who shall remain nameless who tend to go on and on, and I don't like the, what they think, and so I just toss it aside. But for me, that's the greatest thing about the novel, is that I can you know, be reading this book, me, the simple... The simple reader stuck out there in the middle of nowhere, reading my book by this famous author. And I think, huh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what the novel does. The novel gives the reader a sense of freedom. And, and, it's, and it's very private, um, and yet it feels like freedom. This is one of the things I truly love about um, the history of the novel, that the, the larger, the more novels you read, the, the bigger your inner life is. The bigger your inner life is, the more you feel like an agent in your own world. And um, the more you feel like an agent in your own world, the, more, the less likely you are just to do what everybody tells you to do. Um, one of my favorite turning points in the history of the novel is Pamela, which Samuel Richardson wrote just because he... He was a printer, and he was running out of money, and he had to do something. So he picked a topic that he thought would be a big seller, which was uh, a housemaid getting raped by her boss. Well, in the 18th century, you know, didn't they all? And, um, but he gave her a voice, and he made her articulate because the novel's in letters. And I, I always envision all these women and girls just nodding, while they're reading Pamela and saying, yeah, I don't want her to get raped by her boss. Um, and so there's an insertion of consciousness into 
um, this girl who should be reading, you know, the Bible or these other, uh, what, what's that word? Really? Improving mm-hmm. like sermons documents, or something, yes. yeah, sermons. And yet she's reading this novel, and what she's learning to do is think for herself. So if you think of that novel as giving a voice to someone who wouldn't otherwise have it, I mean, in this it's a farming family, mm-hmm. essentially. The descendants of immigrants, of course, like, like pretty much yes. all Americans. So was that part of your thinking behind it, that you wanted to give a voice to the sort of quintessential American pioneer family? No, that, not in particular. I, what I really wanted to do was explore the changes in America in the last hundred years. And to me, the foundation of any culture is how the culture decides they're going to feed themselves and meet their own needs. And American agriculture and the American food business has been truly, truly, truly strange. Um, And the choices that the Americans made basically since the introduction of cornflakes is really peculiar. and, and they've, they've sort of spread out over the world. And I, so I wanted to explore that. My characters, would, in their own minds, would already have had their vo- own voice because they gossip all the time about each other. And, um, you know, they have a lot to say about every little thing. So they don't feel that they're voiceless. Maybe the larger world, you know, the, the people in New York City would say, huh, what are they thinking out there in the boonies? But um, my characters live in their own world, and they have their plenty of opinions. And just to say this family lives in Iowa, well, they start out in Iowa, that's where the core yeah. of the family is. I once went to a wedding in New York City uh, when I was living in Iowa, and some, I said to someone, oh, we've come into town for the wedding from Iowa, and the look on their face was one of horror and disgust. <laughs> At the very mention of it, the very mention of Iowa was horrifying to them. That's very bizarre. It was bizarre. But you, you come, I mean, you obviously lived in Iowa, you went yes. to the University of Iowa, you taught at Iowa State, two separate places. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, Iowa City separate. and Ames, very separate. And you set a thousand acres there. So, what is it about Iowa? Is it so, why is it so talismanic for you? Well, the places that you live and notice are the places that um, strike a chord. I grew up in St. Louis, and there was a lot about St. Louis that was quite interesting, and I did explore some of that in Private Life, which was published in 2010. Um, But St. Louis considers itself extremely cosmopolitan, Um, the, the city that Chicago had originally meant to be. And, um, but Iowa, they, are, they know that they're the center of the agricultural world, um, but they, they also don't feel themselves to have any pretensions. When I moved there, I moved there uh, because my husband at the time had been uh, admitted into the University of Iowa, though I hadn't. And because we were incredibly cheap, we found ourselves a very inexpensive house to rent, but it was 30 miles out of town. And so we would drive into town every day, back and forth, and I would always just look out the window, and, and I got quite interested in the farming landscape, which at that, at that, in that part of Iowa was sort of rolling and very pretty. And um, 
we would drive through Amish country, and that was quite interesting. And then a book came out by Barry Commoner called The Closing Circle, and a lot of it was about pesticides. And I knew that we were drinking water from our well, so that focused my attention on what Commoner had to say. So I would read the Commoner book, walk around, look at the agricultural landscape, and it just got really interesting to me. Um, when I, I spent, I think it was eight or nine years in Iowa City, um, and then I moved to Ames. Well, Ames is a totally interesting place because it's the source of many modern inventions. And not only the computer, but also a lot of agricultural inventions. And they're very self-effacing at, at Iowa State. Um, and Iowa State itself is, is quite self-effacing. And yet it fascinated me to be in this place where so many things had sort of started and then moved out into the world. And so I got even more interested in Iowa as a kind of metaphorical center of America that no one, no one on the coasts up east, west, north, south is even hardly aware of. When you said that Iowa is always off stage, that it's, yeah, it's not, it doesn't see it's itself. It's always off stage, but it's shipping something to the center mm -hmm. stage. And the center stage comes not to be able to do without that. I mean, here's my sweater. My sweater is made of soy. Soy fiber, and I wore it specifically for that reason. Um, and that's a, such an Iowa thing, you know. What to wear a soy fiber sweater? <laughs> well, to to say, what are we going to do with these soybeans? Let's mm -hmm. do something with them. Oh, let's make knitting wool out of them. Mm -hmm. Jane said we had to mention a sweater at some point. I'm yeah. glad you've worked it in so artfully. <laughs> so I spent a long time on this sweater. I have to say. Did you make it yourself? Yeah, I did. Oh, well, that's another. <laughs> These will also be for sale in the foyer. <laughs> I wish. Her books. I wish. I wish. <laughs> that would be good. I'm not fast enough for that, though. There was a woman in Ames who had a knitting shop, and she could knit a sweater in a week. And if you went into her shop, she would be standing there, and she would have one knitting needle sort of pushed against her body like this. And the whole time she was talking to you, her hands were going like this. And you virtually could see whatever she was knitting grow as you were talking to her. And I'm not that person, but I wish I were. But you are similar to that when it comes to writing. You're very disciplined, and you're not someone who languishes around complaining about writer's block, are you? No. <laughs> But you know, what draws me is curiosity. I become, I, I've only written one book that was based at all on my own experience. Um, and the other books I've, I have written because I got curious about something. So for example, The Greenlanders, um, when I was in Europe, I got interested, or I was in college really, I got interested in Old English and Anglo-Saxon and all those and, and all the sources of the English language. And then I went to graduate school and took a lot of Old Norse and Gothic and that sort of thing. Got interested in the sagas. Ended up in Iceland, and I made a friend there who was an oboe player in the Icelandic symphony, who was actually from Edinburgh, and he was a very uh, adventurous guy, and he. Um, 
he, I remember him telling me one day that if you, if you were in Greenland, which he wanted to be, he wanted to row to Greenland. That's how adventurous he was. And I remember him telling me that if you were in Greenland and you fell out of your rowboat, you would freeze to death in five minutes. And I had already read the saga of the Greenlanders and um, the other sagas about the exploration of North America. And I said, oh boy. And so I knew I wanted to write about um, the end of the Greenland colony. But I also knew I needed practice. So um, I decided I would write some other novels first and then try and get to the point where I could handle that kind of material. So that's what I set out to do. So I, I, I've always been motivated by curiosity. I was that girl in, in elementary school who kept asking questions and was finally told to be quiet. Um, and, you know, it's worked for me. <laughs> I'm still very curious. I love... For example, since I've been here and when I was in Christchurch, I love to go for walks. I love to look around. I love to eavesdrop. I love to look over fences. I you like can to do that know. easily because you're so very tall. I can, yeah. It's strange for me standing around near Jane because you're so tall you make me feel short and I hardly ever feel short. You should see me last night with my two-inch heels on. I did. I saw you with heels on. <laughs> Everyone could see you, really. Yeah, my job was to look over the crowd and find people if they, if they needed to be found. She looked very aloof and grand, but you're not an aloof person, though. No, but if people are a head shorter than I am, I can't really hear what they're saying, and so, <laughs> and so I have to pretend that I don't care. <laughs> This is one of the reasons why you need to come to the mics to ask your questions, all right? Uh, you talk about the Nordic uh, thing. This is a sidetrack. I know we, we want to get onto these books, but I remember reading you. Well, there's a Nordic aspect in true. here because true. one of my favorite characters is Andy, who Frank is Frank's wife. Um, and Frank is the sort of the, the tree trunk of the, of the children characters. And Frank um, meets Andy... And um, eventually they get married. And she is from an interesting area of northeast Iowa where um, the towns were settled in the 1840s. And her town would have been settled by Norwegians. And they retained their very Nordic sense of the world. And I really wanted to stick her in because I love this, the sagas and I love that, that Nordic depression. When we were in elementary school, no, when we were in ninth grade, we read a book called Giants in the Earth. Why, why they would give this book to ninth graders, I have no idea. So the main character, they've come to America, they've settled in the Dakotas. You read this whole book, the, the, the father character is very nice, and then he freezes to death um, in the lee side of a hay bale. And mom, in the meantime, is so tired of the weather and the and this endless sky that she hides in a trunk and goes crazy. So I remember reading this in ninth grade. Wow, wow. And it really stuck with me. And so I had to put Andy in, and she's from that part. Decora. This she's is from a Decora, beautiful little Iowa. town. We, we bought many Norwegian Christmas decorations there. Yeah. And also you actually yeah, have yeah. a Norwegian character who's speaking Norwegian early in the book, Ragnar. And yes, but I don't speak Norwegian. Google Translate did it for me. <laughs> All right, because I'm really... No, they're speaking German. 
because the, in the early part of the book, because um, the grandparents, the grandparents on the parent, Arthur, Walter's side of the family comes from England, mm -hmm. and Rosanna's side of the family comes from German and Germany, and so and they have settled near one another in in central Iowa. I do want to talk to you about research for the book, but let's talk about it in a, 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 the trilogy. But let's talk about it in a bigger sense first. It begins in 1920. Yes. So would you talk about why you chose that as your first year? Not, say, 1901. Or oh, okay. I did not want to include the First World War. Um, I decided that the First World War was the end of the previous period, and I wanted to just talk about the modern era. So I pushed the First World War a little bit out of the book and then started in 1920, but that meant I had to um, go to 2019, and I've never tried doing science fiction before, but I figured, you know, I'll do my best when I get there. But, um, so that's why I started in 1920. And so Walter, one of the, the main characters in the book, has come back from the war mm -hmm. and is facing But he didn't see world. much combat. He went in late. Um, he saw a little bit of France um, and northern France, but he didn't see much combat, so he hasn't been terribly affected by the war. Unlike subsequent generations yeah. of his family. So I suppose you were able, by covering that period, to really include the Second World War. And the Second World War, the chapters are fantastic. Then, of course, Vietnam is looming, Korea is looming. You have an amazing stretch of time to cover. So you, you decided to write a chapter per year. Mm -hmm. Bonkers. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, I, I, if I'm going to title the book The Last Hundred Years, I want every year to be equal, more or less. Because I, in my experience, and I'm, I'm 66 now, um, when you look back on your life, things have come and gone. The things that you thought were a huge big deal at the time, either for good reasons or bad reasons, well, they've faded away. Um, and I like to say, well, climaxes come and go. And so normally in a novel, um, you move toward the climax, and it's a big deal, and then you do the denouement. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have it. I wanted to be more like a retrospective. Um, and so that's why I did it year by year. And as I got, after I got used to it, I quite liked it because it enabled me to keep to, to, to keep a kind of faithfulness to my characters. Um, some who lived a long time, some who lived a short time. Um, and I came to like it a lot, Bill. And then, but I would also start writing faster. So um, when I would begin a volume, I would aim for about 750 words a day for two weeks. And then the next two weeks, I would do 1,000 words a day. And then the next two weeks, I would do 1,250 and um, I wanted to do that so that I could ramp up the energy a little bit each And are time. you very disciplined about that, the way Graham Greene was? When Graham Greene got to 500 words, he stopped. Would you do that as well? Not quite, but I would look, I would look forward to stopping. <laughs> <laughs> are you a morning writer? I write whenever. You know, I don't mind. I, I don't write after dinner because then I think about it when I'm trying to get to sleep, and that doesn't work. But um, I, since I have horses and I do, um, and I take, I go riding with my trainer, and I have, you know, I have other things to do. Then 
my, tra- my horse trainer's schedule more or less predicts mine. And, but I don't mind. I don't, the kids are gone. Um, the best moment of the morning before I get on a horse is when I decide what's for dinner and have something to look forward to. And um, so I don't, I'm, I just, I like to do it. I have a theory that there's a difference between addiction and pleasure. And the difference is that if you're, if you're addicted to something, you really want to do it, but you're, you don't feel good afterwards. If you take pleasure in something, you might be lazy, but after you've done it, you feel, you feel great about it. And that's how I feel about writing. Um, so even if I put it off a little bit, I generally think, oh, I should, yeah, let's do it. And then I like it. We were just talking about characters before in this, but we should also talk about points of view because you, it's a big cast of characters, obviously growing with each book, with each subsequent generation. And then one of the things that's so accomplished about the books is the range of points of view and the range of ages within the points of view, even including babies and small children. <laughs> which well, is that was similar. part of my initial idea. Um, I, have, I have three children of my own and two stepchildren, and the thing I noticed about... The, the babies when I had them, was that they were absolutely themselves from day one. Absolutely. And so I had never seen that in a book before. So I wanted to get that in as best I could, how different these children were and how um, they set out into the world with particular characteristics that are going to shape how they experience the world. Um, and so that interests me psychologically. You know, I always, I always run into writing by, say, philosophers and critics, and they're always talking about, well, this is right and this is wrong, or, you know, it, it, and this is why and this is why. And I always think, but how were you raised? How did you start out? What's your temperament? You cannot make those judgments unless, uh, unless you were you had a particular sort of upbringing and a particular form of conditioning. And then once I got started um, riding horses and breeding horses and paying attention to my horses from the day they were born, I saw that they were born with temperaments, they had experiences, their experiences changed the way they approached their job, which is to be ridden, and um, they were in that way no different from people. And um, so I, I always feel that my horses have, have different philosophies from one another. And, um, and I know where they came from. So what you seem to be saying, and tell me if I'm wrong, as I'm sure you will, <laughs> is, is that for a novelist, empathy is absolutely vital because you're transporting yourself into the heads of someone who you could never possibly be yourself and trying to find out what really makes them tick as a person. Yes, I mean, there are novelists who write only about themselves. Um, and some of them are great stylists, and, um, and so they, they do it. They manage to make that accomplishment. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm curious. I want to know. I, I, I always say this, and maybe you've heard me saying it before, but I've all, I was raised in quite a gossipy family. And... So I had, my mother had four brothers and sisters, and my cousins and I loved to get out the old 
box of photographs, and there weren't terribly many, but we'd get them out and then we'd start passing them around just so the aunts and uncles would start telling the stories about their childhood. And they had a pretty adventurous childhood. Um, and, uh, and then, so they'd start telling the stories. And then you'd go in the kitchen and aunt, after hearing what one of the stories was, and one of the aunts would come in and say, no, that's not how it happened. <laughs> this is how it happened, blah, 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 blah. And so you would see that they each had their point of view. And then there was also the, the other aspect of the gossip, which, which was, well, your Aunt Jane has always been blah, 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 blah. Or, that's just the way your mother is. Can you imagine? Blah, 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 blah. And so that's the, the natural upbringing for a novelist, to, to be constantly hearing regular people's theories about how other people tick. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as you get involved with that, you say, oh, I could, I could do that. And um, you become essentially a gossip yourself, <laughs> which is what you are when you're writing a book. Eudora Welty has talked about listening as the first step for a writer. Mm-hmm. You listen to stories, you hear them told, you hear other people talking, and you start to develop an instinct for what makes a story. Well, I think listening is the first step for a story composer, but I think the first step for a writing is, writer is reading. Because... When you, and, and when I was a kid, I only read, you know, the Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew and those kind of books. I didn't read good books until I was in Iceland, or until I was in school, I guess I would have to say. Um, but I loved reading books, and I loved, uh, I read, I'd read them over and over, and I would ponder them and, and, and wonder why things were sort of strange and stuff like that. And so eventually, the storytelling you hear on, on the one hand and the books you read, on the other hand, start to merge. And for me, I would say that happened when I was a senior in high school. Um, and, you know, that's what happened. Now, can we talk a little bit about research for these books? Because you're oh, writing sure. a, a trilogy that covers 100 years, but one of the most impressive things about it is that the reader doesn't feel the research. You're not feeling that it's intrusive. Yet at the same time, I completely believe that you know everything there is to know (laughs) about a given era, about the Depression, about whatever it is, about war, about what it's like to fight at Monte Cassino. I feel like you know. So what what is your secret, Jane Smiley? Curiosity. Um, Every novel that I've written has included has required a certain amount of research. And, and over the years, the way you do the research has changed. So in the old days, you'd go to the library and you'd go to, a, uh, you'd hope for that you had a big library near you or you'd go to other libraries. So when I was writing um, Duplicate Keys, which is a murder mystery, I spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library because one of the characters is a librarian there. Um, but as the internet has blossomed, you can do some research on the internet, not a whole lot, but sometimes, well, yes, sometimes there's really interesting websites. So for these books, um, one of the interesting websites was an Iowa State website about weather in Iowa, day by day, um, for essentially the last hundred years. So I could go to this website and it would tell me where it was raining or what the snowfall was or all that, and that was perfect for me. Another one um, was were model farm websites for 
Iowa and Nebraska, where the farmers would do recordings of what their lives had been like in, in farm, in, in certain eras on the farm. That was totally fascinating. I love visiting places, so um, I would uh, visit places where the books were set just to make sure. I've always done that. I like to visit places where the books are set just to make sure that I have a good sense of the space that the people are living in. Um, I would go to libraries and get books, or I'd get books off Amazon. I use Wikipedia. Um, it's you just your curiosity and your need to know leads you. So my my advice for people who have to do research in their writing is do some, write some, and then you're writing. At some point in your writing, you'll say, oh, "Okay, I don't know this. I need to find out more." So go find out more about that thing. It, it, we do live in a booming era of information, and that's great for a novelist. We don't have to um, rely on a couple, just a few sources. We can, we can find out a whole bunch of things. But it's interesting advice not to do all the research first, because then you won't start writing the novel for another 10 years. You have to get on with it. No, for me, it's always been I'll do a certain amount of research and then I'll have a, a moment where I say, okay, I can begin. And then I'll, I'll write for a while and say, okay, I don't know this. And then I'll go do more research. And then um, probably throughout the whole book, there's more stuff that I need to know, but at least I'm progressing. So some days my 1,250 words would take me a short time because I knew what I needed to know. In other days, my 1,250 words would take me a long time because I had to go figure out things that I didn't know. And what about your characters, your cast of characters? And there's very helpful family trees at the beginning of the novels that get longer and more complicated. Did you have a, a clear notion of the whole cast, or did it keep growing and expanding as you were writing? I did not have a notion of the whole cast. I knew there were going to be five kids... Um, I knew that Walter and Rosanna were born in 1895 and 1900. I knew that Frank was born at the beginning of 1920. I knew when the others were going to be born. Um, I figured it was likely that Rose Walter and Rosanna had a big family, so I gave them some relatives. But for the people that everybody married, well, they just showed up. Um, so Frank goes to Iowa State, and um, there's this girl from Decorah who's very beautiful, who seems quite attracted to him, and I got interested in her. Um, Lillian, who's born in 1926 and who is the darling child, she, be, she goes to work at a soda fountain, and I didn't know Arthur was going to be coming through town. But here comes Arthur, and he's a storyteller. And he's, he's very alluring. And um, he sneaks her away. And I, fell, and I immediately fell in love with Arthur. But Arthur, unfortunately, works for an unnamed U.S. security agency. And so he, he has to be tortured by me. <laughs> so I did a really good job of that. <laughs> But I loved him the whole time. So now I, know, now I know what it feels like to be God. You love him anyway, but whack, 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 whack. 
Elizabeth McCracken was talking about this very thing yesterday. Um, I teach at the university and she came up to talk to my students and she said, in your first draft, often you're too benevolent because you love your characters too much. And she said, at some point you need to become God and, and make their lives difficult. Yes. I'm an atheist also. So you, you're, you could be an evil God. It's fine. You can, yeah. Uh, Jane, one thing you do marvelously in the book is the family dynamic, the rivalries between siblings, so that you can love your sibling but also hate them and torment them, mm -hmm. and that these things start in childhood and go on all your life. My sister is here. She'll know that that's not true <laughs> in our family at all. But I, I, I wondered if you would read a little bit from... Okay. I, I've put down a little bit. This is a fairly short section from Golden Age, and it takes place in 2005. And... Well, I've, I've, I love twins. I wanted to be a twin. And I'm left-handed, and I suspect there was a twin. So that's one of the theories of the left hand, for left-handers, that there was a twin that disappeared. I don't know if anybody thinks that anymore. But, um, and there are no twins in my family. So I decided that Arthur, not Arthur, but Frank and Andy were going to have twins. And the twins are Richie, um, and Michael. Now, Richie um, gets into politics in the 90s, and he's sort of swept into Congress in spite of himself. And he is, I love Richie, but he's a real idiot. And um, his brother, Michael, uh, goes into finance. And they have been at each other's throats from the beginning. Um, and so now Richie has... He has found himself, he's got, he's got a new wife, and he is quite fond of her. Her name is Jessica. And Michael's um, wife is named Loretta. And her, their son is named Leo. Leo has just gotten married and now has a child of his own. So I hope that's not too confusing, but it isn't very long. The next person Richie took Jessica to meet was his mother, he didn't know which one made him more nervous. He was well aware that Jessica cared nothing for her appearance. When she was naked, she was wonderful to look at, at least to him. She was muscular and strong, but her muscles were smooth, did not ripple or bulge. When he embraced her, he could feel the warmth and spring of her body. And she was indulgent. In eight months that they had been dating, she had never once criticized him or told him what to do. She didn't believe in it. Nor did she tell Leo what to do. That, I'm sorry, that's Richie's son. When he challenged her, she said, suit yourself. When he found out she was a boxer, he'd insisted upon donning boxing gloves and going a couple of rounds. She'd rope-a-doped him for maybe six minutes, then given him one in the jaw that knocked him down, though not out. He hadn't asked for a rematch, though she offered to take him along to the gym and give him a few lessons. Richie knew his mother, that's Andy, could fall short in many ways, from a vacant look on her face to wearing something truly antique and strange to offering them six pieces of romaine as their entire meal. However, he had not imagined that she would fail him by inviting Michael and Loretta and Chance and Dealey and the baby, what was his name? Oh, Raymond, after Loretta's dad, Raymond Chandler Peroni Langdon, 
because there was also some old Hollywood connection between Raymond Chandler and Gail Peroni's father. He was now three months old. They called him R.C. The weather was pleasant, not so hot as it had been. Everyone was in the tiny backyard. Richie had explained to Jessica that both Michael and his mom were veterans of AA, so Jessica received her virgin tonic water and lime wedge with her customary cordial good nature. One good thing was that Loretta had taken over the food detail. She whispered to Richie that she'd brought along ribs, potato salad, carrot cake. There is actual, exactly nothing in the refrigerator. I asked her what she lives on. She says there's a bakery somewhere that makes wonderful chocolate croissants. Jessica observed where R.C. had been placed and sat far away from him. That put her near to chance, and Richie saw them start talking. Michael sat down beside him and said, Hot. I'd like to think you are referring to the weather. No, you wouldn't. She's a lovely, harmless girl who could beat you to a pulp in about five minutes, so keep your opinions to yourself, okay? She gainfully employed. She's a bouncer at a gay bar. <laughs> Out of the corner of his eye, Richie saw that Michael was impressed. He said, I'm joking, she manages a fitness gym. Low on fertility is my guess. I think she's opted out of the asshole reproduction role. <laughs> she has six brothers and a sister. She's the second old oldest. You're sure she's a girl, right? I mean, you've had plenty of time to look by now. You can't judge by the exterior add-ons or even the fake vagina. It's, it's really in the hips. Richie knew that part of his problem for his entire life was that he couldn't come up with right posts. Michael's barbs surprised him every time, and he was missing whatever part of your brain it was that batted back. Michael went on. I have this Playboy in my permanent collection from five years ago, the December issue. You could tell the one who started out as a guy. Great hair, beautiful face, but hips like chances. And why not say something mean about Chance the dope or his floozy wife whose hair seemed to have been put on like a football helmet? But Jessica was chatting with Dealey in a pleasant, animated way. Chance had gone around to the other side of the house. Richie felt his teeth grinding. He said, Mom seems immortal. Gail Peroni is 10 years younger than she is and looks 10 years older. Loretta says there's some group that does calorie restrictions and they live to be 100. Maybe that's it. It isn't genetic. Uncle Sven died in his 70s. I think she's using an artificial preservative, said Michael. Formaldehyde. <laughs> Richie said, you have a sick imagination. I call it creative. If you refuse to think outside the box, then you get stuck in Brooklyn. Richie made up his mind to ignore this. Michael was clearly bursting with pleasure at some stock market innovation he had recently come up with. It was true that he never told Richie any of his net worth particulars, but Loretta didn't mind tossing around large numbers as if they were the price of pasta. I think it was 50 million. Was it 50 million, Michael, or 45? Binky, have you put in your paperwork for the year abroad program or haven't you? Please give me a straight answer. Or 
That place on East 70th I told you about, it went for 24 million. I nearly fell over. I can't imagine what our place is worth now. <laughs> Chance had returned. And what did he have with him but a lariat? Now he and Jessica walked toward the back of the yard, him swinging the rope in a leisurely way above his head. He and Jessica were still chatting away. He lassoed a lawn chair and pulled it toward him, took the rope off, set the chair upright. Then he performed some rope tricks that Richie had seen on TV, bringing the rope down around himself then raising it up, enlarging the loop so that he could step through it, spinning the rope on one side of his body, then switching arms and spinning it on the other side. Michael said, that's the hard one, but he's ambidextrous. Did he bring a calf along too? Yeah, only, only R.C. Richie glanced over toward the rest of the group. R.C. was snuggled against his mom, a baby blanket over his head. Ivy had never been so modest. That's Richie's ex-wife. Once when she was nursing on an airplane and the flight attendant had said they ran out of food, Ivy snapped, This is making me hungry, so I'll take what the captain is having. <laughs> the flight attendant brought the food. Richie had been the one who wanted to hide his head. Now Chance coiled up the rope and handed it to Jessica. She was tentative at first so that the rope caught and fell, but within a few minutes she was leaning over it, her arm up, getting it to go around. Told you, said Michael. Very slowly and smoothly, but with evident strength, Jessica now began making the lariat twirl unevenly above her head. Then, quite smoothly, she tossed it toward the lawn chair. It hit the top of the curved back, slid down. Chance and Jessica both laughed. It was Loretta, with perhaps some input from Dealey, who decided that Chance was having too much fun. She got up, went in the house, and came out with plates, napkins, silverware, the food. When she called out, Jessica looked up startled as if she'd been enjoying herself quite a bit. On the way home, Richie was in a bad mood for the first time since he'd met her, but Jessica seemed not to notice. She said, Chance is a cute kid. He's practicing being able to do rope tricks talk, and talk at the same time. Well, that's been done before. Oh, really? Who did that? Will Rogers. Who was that? Richie didn't answer, just said, what does he want to talk about? Well, the goal is someone in the audience yells out a word and he talks about it for a minute. Then someone else yells out another word. We tried it. What word did you give him? Campaign. Richie's a politician. What did he say? He said that that was a region in France where they grow a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay grape, and then he described the two kinds of fermentation. Did you correct him? Yes. Then what did he say? He sang a verse of that U2 song, Beautiful Day, but then he lost control of the rope. He needs practice. Richie was willing to admit that if Chance had been his son, he would have liked him better. Thank you. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Jane Smiley. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.